0: Thanks for that, Darcy. It's those kinds of jokes that keep me away all summer. It is great to be back, and uh, I'm really excited to share a passage of Scripture with you that I've been thinking about, uh, actually, for the last number of weeks. It's out of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 25. So, like, if you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. We're also going to put some of the verses on the screen so you can follow along. Before we do that, though, i got to tell you about... uh, an occasion when I was a young, a young kid, uh, I was learning how to play golf with my, my, with my dad. I was okay at golf. Um, it made me angry, as it does everybody who plays it. But we used to play with uh, this other couple, um, a father and a son, and we'd get together and we'd play golf with them. They, they were um, Welsh, so very good at golf because it was in their background, and the father, in fact, was actually one of the best golfers I'd ever seen. He was always trying to teach his son how to hit. But I don't know if you've ever played golf before or been in a situation where you're golfing with a buddy who uh, always wants to correct your swing or change the way that you, the way that you approach the ball or your aim or your grip or whatever it is. This father, every time his son would go to the tee to try to hit a ball, would start instructing him about all the little details that he was supposed to focus on. Okay, keep your shoulder down, your chin down. Make sure you keep your head on the ball. Uh, make sure your swing doesn't come back too far. Don't try to hit it too hard. Aim the ball. You know, you're, you're lined up a little bit to the right. you got to turn a little bit back to the left. I mean, he would give this long litany of things that, that, that his son was supposed to do. And at one point, I remember at this particular golf course, uh, the boy was lining up to hit. I was standing behind him with my dad. And all of a sudden, uh, his father starts in on, do this, do that, do this, do that, do this. Don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. And the boy lost his mind. He turned around to his dad and said, will you shut up? The father who was a very uh, forthright, uh, he had a good sense of humor, but he was not laughing. He was a very forthright, straightforward guy. He was not happy with what his son just did. And, and he said to his son, what did you say? You heard me. And the boy took the golf club and he threw it into the, into the uh, fairway which made the father freak out and started to start chasing him. No kidding. They were chasing each other down the fairway and back around. The boy was faster than the dad, but the dad chased him, honestly, around two, three holes. And I stood there with my dad wondering what in the world had had just happened. I think about that whenever I go golfing uh, and try to remind myself not to tell the players I'm with to hit it this way or that way unless they, unless they ask. And also remember that as mad as I get, I don't wanna throw that golf club into the fairway or tell the people around me to shut up so that we don't chase each other all around the fairway. Um, golf though is an interesting and difficult game because there are so many things that you have to focus on in order to hit the ball right. And sometimes people just flat give up because there are just too many things to, to get a swing right. There's too many things you gotta think about. I think sometimes uh, that following Jesus can kind of be like that too. Uh, if you if you go to church for long enough, you end up hearing enough sermons, you end up uh, going to the Bible studies enough, and you learn enough about who God is, what He's like, and what He's called us to. That at some point you, you're like, oh yeah, I have to do this, and oh yeah, I have to do this, and then don't do this, and make sure you do that, and you get to the point where you just your mind is cluttered with all sorts of do's and don'ts, and. Uh, you just at some point want to say, I'm done. I'm done. It's just, it's too hard. It's too cumbersome. It's not freeing. In fact, one of the biggest pains in my heart when I get really down, which happens from time to time, and I sit on the edge of my bed struggling with, with depression. The things that roll through my mind, one of them is how many people I have known who have started following Jesus and have given up. Uh, I know so many who I have um, counseled in the past, people I've taught, leaders that I've trained who started out well, but because of a series of circumstances in their lives, they just flat gave up. They just said it was, it's too hard. There's too much to it. I'd rather just go and do my own thing and just forget about it. Golf's not for me. Christianity's not for me. And it's the, it's, it's the thing that pains my heart more than anything else in ministry. And it pains my heart because passages like Hebrews 3, which are really clear. Hebrews 3.14 says, We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. So you're, you're a genuine Christian. You will receive reward from God. You you will hear his commendation at the end of your life if you continue. It's all true. The promises of God are for you if you continue. And if you don't, well, that just shows you haven't come to share in Christ. So everything's at stake with the question of continuing. And so we need to think to ourselves well, how do I continue? Like, what, what is it going to look like for me to not get bogged down with all the details, but instead focus on the basics of what it looks like to follow Jesus from here until the day he comes or from here until the day I die? How do I finish the race? How do I finish it well? So this passage that I want to I read you and study together is really, ex- it, uh, it's really explaining that. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25 actually has three very clear um, commands in it on what to do in light of the fact that you're saved. Like, you're a Christian, you believe the gospel, God has done great things for you. What do you do in light of the fact that you're saved so that you can finish the race to the very end? Three things he points out here, the author. Number one is draw near to God. Second, hold unswervingly to hope. And third, consider how to spur. So I want to kind of work through our passage using those headlines. So the first one was draw near to God. And you see that in verse 19 to 22. Uh, Therefore... Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is His body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, now I want to pause there and just give you a little bit of background. We haven't been reading the whole book of Hebrews up to this point, but there's some imagery that the writer using here to, to 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 draw our attention to what's happened to us in Christ, what whatever we received as Christians. And the picture that he's drawing on is, the, is kind of the architecture of the temple. The ancient Jewish temple um, had many different courtyards. And each courtyard, there was one on the outside called the Courtyard of the Gentiles. So anybody from outside of Israel could go into that courtyard. But then there was a, a, a wall that only Jewish people could go through. And then there was another courtyard. And only beyond that could priests go through. And then there was a, a centerpiece called uh, the Most Holy, the Holy of Holies, and only could a high priest go in there. And then there, inside of that, was a little box, and that box had the Ark of the Covenant in it. it that box had all sorts of um, all sorts of holy uh, uh, things in it. And the, the, the high priest could only go in there once, once a year to make, uh, to make amends for the people, to offer sacrifices in there. If he got it wrong in that little box, he would actually die because only perfection could be expected from a holy God. But you see the image, right? I mean, the closer you get to God, the more holy, the more righteous you had to be to the very point that if you were going to enter his presence, you had to be perfect or you would die. This is the image that he's drawing on, and, and he's saying, listen, there was no way for sinners like us to approach a holy God, to have a relationship with a holy God, because we have too much sin. The only way for us to approach a holy God is if God himself does something for us, if he, he forgives us of our sin and gives us the kind of righteousness That will allow us to go into the most holy place and not not die because of the holiness of God. And that is basically what Jesus has done for us. What God had planned before the beginning of time to send His Son, that He would make atonement for us. He lived the life we should have lived, the perfect life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died, taking on the punishment for sin in our place. And now the, the New Testament writers say we are in Christ. Those who believe in him are in Christ. And to be in Christ means that you take on, and just think about that image, you're in him. You take on the character traits of Christ, of Christ himself, not because you have them, but because you're in him and he has them. So when God looks at you, He sees Christ and His perfection. The reason you can boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence, the reason you can boldly, you know, run into the the presence of God is because you're in Jesus Christ who Himself is completely perfect. His traits and characteristics are attributed to you by faith. Now, Uh, Maybe there's an image that would help here it's not a perfect image, but essentially what's happened is that you've become uh, Mystique those of you who have X-Men Like passions, you know X the X-Men comic strip, you know Wolverine and and Cyclops and all those guys there is there is a character in that in that uh, Comic book series called mystique. She's the blue Scaly looking person if you've ever seen the movies Her particular superhero skill is that she's able to adapt her looks to anyone that she has uh, touched before. So if I went over and I touched uh, Ezra, I could immediately look like Ezra and then I could go into any location anywhere and I would look like Ezra and everyone would assume that I I was Ezra. This of course grants you all sorts of access that you yourself don't have. This is the image, I think, That what God has done, he's, he's basically covered us in Christ so that we look like Jesus to God. That when we walk into the throne of grace and we stand before God, he sees his son, Jesus Christ. That's what's happened to you. And so the writer of Hebrews wants to establish that and say, you have full entrance. You can boldly go in. You can draw. You can draw near to God. And because you can draw near God, he finishes in verse 22, let us. Because this is all true, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So in other words, because God has established a way for you to approach him through the blood of Jesus, sacrifice for you, because he's done that, then do it. Why would you not do it? If you have the access, if you have the riches, why would you not deploy those riches? If you have the access, why would you not draw near? There was a woman I read about a number of years ago um, who lived basically as a homeless woman on the streets. Uh, She was known around the soup kitchens and the other locations of her city. To be a regular there, she she actually would sleep often in the homeless shelters. She wasn't always around. Uh, sometimes she would depart and come back and was in the homeless shelter again. And so people thought she was very poor. They used to give her financial assistance and all sorts of things like that. Well, unfortunately, one day she, she, she passed away. And uh, when they were researching her Holdings, her estate, which of course they thought was nothing, they actually found that this woman who had died had an enormous amount of wealth. She had something like 1.2, 1.3 million dollars to her name that she never used. and said she would sleep in these soup kitchens, uh, sleep in these in these homeless shelters, and eat at the soup kitchen. What a shame, right? Here's this lady who's got all sorts of wealth and all that she possibly needs to live a life that isn't on the streets, and yet here she is living on the streets and not deploying the wealth. This is this is what the author of Hebrews is trying to urge you. Don't be this person. If you have the wealth, spend it. If you have the access to God, then use it to access God. If he's invited you to draw near and made a way for you to draw near, then then draw near, there's nothing to fear. But we do fear. A lot of times we don't draw near to God. Why? Like what's going on in us to make it so that it's hard for us to draw near to God? I mean, I've got a couple of answers to that. I think one of the reasons is because we have shame. We look at our lives and we say, man, I can't go and approach God in the state I'm in. I can't go. This is why people don't go to church sometimes. They're like, oh, I'm not going to go to church. If I go into church, I'm going to get struck down dead because my life doesn't match up to what it ought to, which of course is silly because everybody who's in church is just as bad or worse than you. But I'm not going to approach God. Adam and Eve, when they first sinned against God, the first thing they did was hide from him. Why? Because they were ashamed. They didn't want to get caught. This is what little kids do when they break mom and dad's rules. They steal the cookie out of the cookie jar and the cookie jar comes crashing down and it lands and it breaks. And mom hears it and says, what was that? The kids don't immediately run into the other room to mom and saying, I love you, mom, mom. I'm so happy you love me. Instead, they run out the back door. We hide. We hide because we're ashamed of what it is that that we've done. We pull away from God thinking he's disappointed in us. But listen, what... What the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that you don't need to do that because you're in Christ. Like your fundamental mistake when you pull away from God is saying that that's how he sees you. It's just in yourself. He he doesn't see you in Christ, but he does. Even when you've been wicked by faith, Christ is yours and you are in him. And so there is nothing to fear. The direction you should run in your shame is not away from God, but but to Him. Draw near to Him. He's made a way. Despite your wickedness, He's not disappointed. He, he knows you better than you know you. You can run to Him. So why don't we draw near to God? Well, one of the reasons is shame. One of the other reasons, I think honestly, is that many of us have a history of, of being hurt. Uh, you know what dogs are like when, the, when their owners are really nasty to them? Uh, we had a dog named Max at one point when I was younger, and uh, he came from an abusive home. We picked him up at, uh, at the pound, and they said, listen, you, you need to know that you're going to have to warm this, this dog's heart to being near you because the previous own, owner used to beat him. So every time you go near Max and you raise your voice, he'd cower and go to the corner. Every time uh, some big sound in the house would go, you know, bang, the cookie jar coming down, he would run. Because and he'd hide. Um, Some of us feel that way toward God, and we look back at our lives and we say, "Look at all the things that have gone on in my life. Look at all the difficulties I've had. How can I trust God? Like it hasn't gone the way that I've planned up to this point." So I don't know if I want to draw near to Him. I know it is that He's made He's made a way for me, but like life hasn't happened in a happy way. I've, I've faced a lot of pain and difficulty. But here's what you need to know. And, and this, is, this is a beautiful truth uh, of Scripture. Uh, God will never waste any of the pain you've experienced at all. Uh, if you believe, as our culture does, that the end of your life is just the end of your life and there's nothing out there, the universe will just coldly stare back in indifference towards you. And the best you can do is just live in the moment, you know, try to get as many whooshes as you can, which is really the message that our culture has. If you believe that, you have no hope for the suffering that's gone on in your life. You can just want to be vindictive and get angry. But listen, if you're a Christian, you know that God is for you. You know that He's made a way for you to draw near to Him. You, you, you know this. And you know that all of the suffering that you've faced is, is, is going to be used for your, for your good. God is not a vindictive killjoy. He he is a loving father. And as a loving father, some of the pain that you've experienced in your past has had a a purpose, even though you didn't know it in the moment. I've used the illustration before of a a child going to get their shots. You know, the parent takes them in to get the doctor to give them a vaccination. And the vaccination, you know, the, the child's laughing. And then the doctor pokes the child with the needle. And the child freaks out. Looking at the parent like, what have you done to me? And the parent knows, well, I'm doing this to you because it's for your good in the long run. It It might not feel that way in the present moment. But listen, I have reasons for what I'm doing. And I can't explain to you right now all the ins and outs of, you know, virology. But in time, you'll see that this was worth it. So you can draw near to God. Even if you're ashamed and even if you've been hurt before, the direction to go is always to draw near to Him. Christ has made a way for us to boldly approach Him. So draw near. Second, um, in order to finish the race, in order to keep following Jesus, we need to hold unswervingly to hope. That's the language that's used in verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For He who promised is faithful. Let us hold unswervingly. So the, the, the word there is a, a delightful Greek word that really is trying to emphasize the idea of having a death grip on something, being unmoved. If there's an earthquake, you're the pillar that doesn't shake, that holds up no matter what. I was driving here actually a little bit ago and there was a, a, a spider off the edge of my, my um, mirror and, uh, you know, they, sometimes spiders will make their web between there. And I was driving along. I only notice it toward the end of my, end of my drive to the, to the church. And I noticed that this spider was flinging in the wind. But he had, he had held on all the way across town in the wind like this. And I thought, now there's a picture of holding unswervingly to something. When I was uh, younger and I first started dating my girlfriend, who's now my wife, um, Jeannie, uh, I went to their house in Eastern Washington State, and her father said, "Hey, I have figured out a way for us to get a, a boat, and we can go for uh, a ride on the Snake River, which is just near where they lived. Uh, we can go like tubing and water skiing and stuff." And so we went down there, and we sat in the boat, and I was with her. I mean, it was very early on in our relationship, and so you know, he was trying to get to know me, the mom was trying to get to know me, and like so, I I uh, remember. They said, do you want to go tubing? And I said, yeah, that, I'd love to. And I grew up around lakes and had friends taking me tubing all the time, so I was quite used to staying on a tube. I remember getting on that tube, and my now father-in-law decided that he was going to punish me for coming across the state and having any interest in his, his daughter. He would spin me at high speeds as hard as he could. He would try to take me over the wake of the boat, jump me off of the thing. And I remember thinking to myself early on, okay, that's how it's going to be. I dare you to get me off this tube. I mean, Jeannie was sitting in the back of the boat looking, looking back at me. There's no way that in her presence I am going to give up. At the end of this, she's going to know what kind of man she's dealing with and her dad's going to know that I'm in it. And I mean it. So I remember him spinning me around and I was holding on. He didn't dump me. Uh, for the next four days, I couldn't move my arms, but it was worth it. I got the girl. But that's the image, right? To the ho- the hold with a death grip, even though the waves are coming at you, even though everything is going wrong, even though the, 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 the enemy of our soul, Satan himself, is trying to get you off that tube and to make you flip over and to give up, I will not give up. I will hold unswervingly. Now notice what you're supposed to hold unswervingly to. The hope. Hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And by that he means, look, there will be a day where Christians are part of the new heavens and new earth. All of the things that we have dreamed and hoped for will be no match for how great it actually will be. Paul himself says, I don't consider the present sufferings worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. You ever waited in a really long line? And there are people who are ahead of you in the really long line who just at some point just give up and they they walk, they turn around and they walk by you and they look at you and they say, it's just not worth it. And you start thinking, oh man, maybe I should turn around too because maybe it's not going to be worth it. Now, the thing that will keep you in the line and keep you persevering is if the thing at the end of the line, the thing you're waiting for is worth it. If the deal on Black Friday is worth it, you'll be in the line. If going across the border is worth it, then you'll wait in the line. If getting the special sale on the Air Force is worth it, then you'll wait in the line. It is worth it. And I'm telling you that heavenly bliss, that the hope that we have in Christ is worth it. On a level that none of the things we've ever experienced in our life are worth it. So, yeah, we're waiting in line. Yeah, we're on the tube and being spun around like crazy, but hold unswervingly to the truth. Now, if you're like me, you hear that and you're thinking to yourself, OK, so it's on me <laughs> like it's on me. I'm, I'm now expected to do all of this. So God has saved me. And now he's like, well, it's up to you now, man. I hope you're strong enough to hold on. That's half true. Yes, it does depend on my will and desire. But that will and desire and the power to hold on actually comes from somewhere else. You saw the last phrase, did you not hold? It, it let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. It's not all on you. There is a power source that will come to your aid and actually drive you forward the moment you you start pedaling. Now, I'm using the image of pedaling because I've been riding my bike this summer quite a bit. And uh, I've, I've learned one of my most hated experiences on my bike is when I am going as hard as I can on my bike, wherever up a hill, in the flats, whatever it is, and next to me goes by somebody who is pedaling at one you know one quarter the speed that i'm pedaling they're sitting very upright on this bike and they're just flying past me i'm like what is going on and i look down and i realize that they have an electric bike and here i am i got no it's just my power and i'm trying to give it as much as i can and they're kind of just sitting up straight and saying hello good day to you hi how are you It's a lovely day. They want to have a conversation with you, and they're barely pedaling because the motor inside this bike is actually doing the work. And I think that's what it's like. I think that's ultimately what God says. Listen, just get on the bike and start pedaling, right? Hold unswervingly to the truth. Hold on to the tube, but I'm telling you that the moment you start doing it, I, by my Holy Spirit, will come, and I will empower you to keep going. So ultimately, it will be my work and not yours. It'll feel like it's your work. It'll feel like you're gripping for deadly for, for life, but ultimately it's my work. All I need you to do, all I need you to do is keep pedaling. And you'll see the power of God to finish the race. So what do we do to finish? We draw near to God. We hold unswervingly to hope. And then finally, here, here's the last one. Uh, consider how to spur. So that comes from verses 24 and 25, l- the last command, and and let us consider how to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up the meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. That word spur... If you go through the Bible and you find that that's a Greek word in the New Testament, if you go through the New Testament and you look for other places it's used or in the Greek version of the Old Testament, you look for where it's used, it's it's almost always used in a context that's, that's negative. And by negative, I mean it, it, it's used to describe like Paul and Barnabas, two of the early apostles, missionaries who have a fight with each other and end up splitting up. What what Luke, who writes Acts, describes it as, he calls it a sharp disagreement. That's the word that's used here. They had a spur that resulted in them, in them splitting up. The word actually probably should be used as provoke. There's a provocation to, to provoke another. My, my wife is uh, my dearest friend, and I am a very playful person. Those, of, those who know me know that I, I like to goof around a lot. There are a couple things that she cannot stand. One of them is that when she's going to sleep at night, uh, she has to have her hair pulled all the way back so it's not on her face. And sometimes I'll, I'll lay down in bed next to her and I'll just take her hair and I'll throw it in her face. And she'll push it back and then I'll throw it in her face. She'll push it back and I'll keep throwing it in her face and she pushes it back. Stop it! Stop it! She'll start getting mad at me. That's what it means to provoke. Some, she, she used to pull her hair back in, uh, in a braids or work real hard in getting her hair nice and tight in her head, and I'd walk up to her after doing it, and I'd just take my hand and push it backwards so that it poofed back up and she'd have to do it again. That's what it means to provoke. Now, those are negative things, of course. They, they lead to fights. But the language here is you're not, we're not supposed to spur one another toward anger. We're supposed to spur one another toward love and good deeds. So take the same kind of provocation, that same kind of effort that's required to provoke somebody to anger and turn it around and say, I'm going to use that to provoke you to love and good deeds. That I'm going to invest myself in your life so much that it's going to spur you. It's going to provoke you. You won't be able to sit still. You won't be able to massively just Coast because there'll be a spur in your life. Now, what does that look like to spur? He actually gives two very, uh, one actually big, big example that is stated both in a positive way and a negative way. The negative way he states, if you notice the next phrase, uh, phrase let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing so one of the ways you do this is you keep part of God's local church you keep part of what God's doing in the community of faith now in in the background of Hebrews one of the challenges they were having was that uh, there were a lot of persecution coming on the Christians but there were not persecution coming on to Jews so the government was really uh, picking on Christians but if you were Jewish it was okay. Now, a lot of the people who were Christians came from uh, Jewish backgrounds. And so they, were, they had a decision to make. They were like, well, either I keep identifying with these Christians and face the persecution, or I abandon the Christian community, go back to the Jewish community and get, community and get out of the persecution. And some people were in the habit of doing that. Some people were like, you know, it's not worth it. I'm going I'm to give up. I'm going to abandon it. And, and the writer of Hebrews is like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Listen, if you do that, you you will not finish the race. If you abandon the community, you, you will not finish the race. Now, it could be also because people are apathetic. In our setting, I think that's probably more the case. They're indifferent or apathetic. Oh, I don't really. Church is hard, and Sunday mornings are really nice, and I'd much rather just spend time, you know, doing my own thing. My kids have sports, you know. I So in the end, what ends up happening is that people abandon the community of faith, and ultimately, after they abandon the community of faith, they abandon the faith. It's a well-worn path. So the negative thing, what we're not supposed to do is to give up our meeting together, to abandon that community of faith. But, he says, instead, we are to encourage one another. So don't abandon, but instead spur by encouraging provoke by encouragement. Hey, you can do it. You can keep on going. You can make it. Which means, of course, that if you're part of a church, it's not looking at the backs of somebody else's head or just going, ticking the box, I went to church today, and then going home. It's an involvement with the people of God. It's getting involved with your brothers and sisters because there will be a moment in your life where you need the spurring encouragement from them. And I guarantee you that they need the spurring encouragement from you. You can spur them on toward love and good deeds. So they continue in the faith by, by encouraging one another. So, I, you know, if we're going to be honest, it's that's really hard during a pandemic, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, because right now we're, we're sitting at home, you know, in our jammy pants and with our coffee and, and and our cinnamon buns and that's fine for now that's that's great for now but how, how are we going to do that now how, how are we going to make it to the end if this continues that we just have we're separated as a church we can't physically be together well I, listen I think there's a few things that, that we can do um, I think that we need to me- probably make a greater effort to connect ourselves with these videos with the teaching that God's giving, not just from any church, but from your church, from people you know and that you trust, from people you can make a phone call to or have a meeting with in the middle of uh, of the week. Um, I think that uh, watching some of the other material that we put out, or getting engaged with other Christian uh, community material that's online for now, then maybe doing something midweek, maybe listening to some podcasts of sermons, or getting a good book and listening to the book you know read. Uh, as an audiobook as you drive around or something, some Christian content. Um, and I think it's, you know, it, even though it's hard, you can attend stuff. Uh, either digitally, you can do it by Zoom. Some of the all of our meetings these days are being carried by Zoom, but you can also come on weekends to, to church. You don't need to do it every week, but I gotta tell you that it would be lovely to see you. I'm preaching every weekend. It's gonna be, it's gonna be great. And it's going to help you not abandon the the community of faith. We have community groups that run and watch parties. But ultimately, here's my big push, that when all this is over, and it will be over, COVID is not going to last as long as the Lord our God. When it's over, then you need to commit yourself to being a part of the local body. You need the presence of your brothers and sisters to spur you on. Well, let me finish with this. I, I think everything is at stake in what it is that I said. So There's a reason I chose this passage to talk about, because I'm asked repeatedly by people, what is your greatest fear in the midst of this pandemic? And one of my greatest fears for the Christian church is that people will abandon the faith because one of God's chief means of keeping them in the faith, the actual community of faith, the church itself, is not meeting. And the way that it works most often is if you sever yourself from the church, you sever yourself from from the faith. If you even look at this passage, it's in the context of perseverance. In the next few verses, Hebrews 10, 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Listen, if you don't finish, you don't finish the race. If you continue sinning instead of repenting, there's, there's no expectation that God is going to welcome you into, into, his heavenly, into your heavenly home. It, there's just an expectation of the judgment by fire. The passage itself, we just, we, we just read, right? But encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Why should you encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching? That day is the day of the Lord, the day of Christ's return. Well, the reason he says that is for the same reason why you should probably, if your friend runs a marathon, you should stand at the end of the marathon when there's about three miles left to go, and you should be there to cheer on. They don't need the cheering in the second mile. They need the cheering and the encouragement and the spur toward the end. So as you see the day approaching, spur even more, encourage even more, because everything's at stake. Everything's at stake. Or to put it plainly, meeting together is fundamental to Christians continuing in the faith. And abandoning the community likely means ultimately abandoning Christ. That's what it, lions always like to pick off the little stragglers, don't they? They don't usually go after the whole herd. They just look for the ones who are straggling off on their own. And the devil is a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. And that's the way it works. I said at the beginning that uh, my heartache is people who've fallen away from the faith. Under my ministry or after my ministry, there's a young woman who, uh, when I left New Zealand, had just stopped attending church in the last year we were there. I remember visiting her in her house and saying, "Like, are you going to come back to church? Are you? What's going on?" And she said, "Well, I got to tell you, I'm closer to God now than I've ever been. I, I sit at home and I eat, drink my coffee and I eat these scones, and it's phenomenal. My husband likes it better. He doesn't have to get up as early. We just do it when we want to do it. Listen to the music we like. We do our own church, and they started doing that, and." Um, They did it for the next year. I ended up checking up on them when I moved here to find out how things were going through one of the pastors who was there. They said, well, they're still not back at church, and there's some questions as to what they're involved in and doing these days. Anyway, we went back to visit two years later, and when we got there, we realized uh, through one of the pastors that they had totally abandoned the faith. You know how many times I've seen that happen? (laughs) I remember, you know, I say this to people all the time. In, in theology classes and sermons and stuff, uh, take heed lest you fall. If you want to abandon the church, if you make a habit of not meeting together and not spurring one another on, the future is cloudy. Will that be you? Or will you rather draw near to God Hold unswervingly to hope. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. May that be the case for us. Amen.